What is up, designers, and welcome back to the Grand Design Podcast. The podcast is all about taking the ideas in your head and materialize them, materializing them in the world in the form of mass movements. You know, it's Dallas. In this podcast episode today, we're going to talk about the three components that actually go into creating a mass movement, you know, as defined by, you know, Russell Brunson in his book, Expert Secrets, which you can get at expertsecrets.com. I don't get paid to say that, but this book is like the Bible for designers. Um, it's an amazing book all about creating mass movements and creating culture. And I'm just a learner. I'm a, I'm a beginner on this road. And so I want to uh, reference this book a lot, you know. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that today. And I want to put that all into context by giving you a little backstory of what mass movements meant to me, you know, and how I initially created my first mass movements. Um, I believe it all really started for me you know, as a wrestler in high school, ironically enough, that's like a weird place to think of mass movements. But, uh, by the end of this podcast, you kind of realize that teams, businesses, everything alike, they're all mass movements. And so when you're part of a wrestling team, you're part of a mass movement, but I'm not going to get too much into that right now. Let's just start at the very beginning. At the very beginning, you know, like I said, I mean, you and I, you can relate to this, right? I mean, I felt different and unappreciated because of my differences underrated because of my differences literally since as far as I can remember back I don't remember feeling like you know a lot of attention like I was at the forefront of my own life like I was a side character even in my own life I didn't feel like a lot of people rated me highly or you know you know really uh integrated with me well you know uh there was not a lot of friendships or you know, relationships that were intimate and respecting of who I was as a character because, my, you know, unless I put on a front, unless I faked, because the person that I was innately was different, genetically was different from the rest of society in many ways, as you know, you can relate to this, right? You know, as a designer, you might feel this way, you know, there was a lack of general attention, a lack of general love being pushed in my t- in my direction in every form of my life, in every arena of my life. And that's something that I felt. You know, like I said, elementary school, I didn't speak to anybody. Middle school, I can count on my hand how many people I spoke to, how many friends that I had. I really had only one friend throughout really every stage of my life. Um, I've been alone for a lot of the time with these ideas, with these creations that I wanted to make. In high school, you know, it initiated no different, you know. I, I, you know, I put my personality out there a little bit more, and I made more friends in high school uh, over time. But, you know, in the beginning, uh, I didn't really have an identity. I didn't really have a place where I belonged. And uh, so I joined the wrestling team because a coach asked me to join the wrestling team, and I wanted to do something. I wanted to be part of something bigger than me. So I was like, man, look, I'm going to join the wrestling team. Okay. And in this endeavor of joining the wrestling team, um. You know, when you're a designer, these are the first stages of where you find success. You know, have you, are you are you if you're listening to this, are you a person that succeeded in sports where, you know, you excelled far beyond what everybody else kind of did? You know, I was the MVP of my team senior year, you know, which is, you know, not really a thing to me now. I mean, it's high school. I mean, come on now. It's beyond it's behind you, but it's still important in my heart. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of the designers, you know, are high flyers in their early endeavors because, you know, they just have that conviction towards the ideals that they set, you know, and if that idea is a state title or something, you just have conviction towards it. It's just deep seated, burning desire to get it done. But, uh, yeah, that was the first place, you know, I, uh, so I joined wrestling as a freshman in high school. Right. 
And at first it was just an experience. It was just something like I was lost in the wind. I didn't have any passion towards. I was just trying. I was just, you know, going through the phases of everyday life, just kind of drifting from opportunity to opportunity. And uh, that first year, it wasn't really the best year. You know, I was like, what, uh, 11 and nine. It was my record. And um, the big deal for every, you know, freshman is you want to go to the JV counties. Okay. Who knows? You don't want to win it. You just want to go to the JV counties. And I remember sitting in that wrestling room. And uh, one of the people we looked up to was a guy named Scott Dangler. You know, he was the GOAT. Scott was the GOAT, you know. Uh, and then it was this other guy I looked up to. I still look up to this to this very day because he was so real even then. And he's so real even now. Like, you know, um, his name was Dave Wozniak. And Dave was a beast, man. Dave was Dave was undefeated like that entire season. Scott was undefeated that entire season. Um, but these are the people that I looked up to in the wrestling room. And I wanted to be like them, you know. So we come into this wrestle room and I'm just drifting from the opportunity to opportunity. But I'm watching Dave and I'm watching Scott and I'm watching him win. And I'm growing an admiration for them. You know, uh, Scott Dangler had won the county title the year before. OK. And so he was the man, you know what I mean? And Dave was, you know, he, he had gone through the youth programs and all that. So Dave was in my grade level, but he was a good wrestler. He was a surefire lock to win the county title that year. Uh, Scott was a sophomore. And so he was going to go to JV counties with us and, you know, go to win a title again, which I believe he went on to do. But, uh, okay, we're in a, we're freshmen and we're, we're in the room in that season. You know, I was 11 and nine, you know, I remember my first wrestling match. Um, it was at a tournament called Delaney. It was an invitational. I don't even know what happened in that match, to be honest. Like everything was just like a blur, like a storm of like hands and wrists and all these types of things. I believe I just lost that match, uh, on points or something like that. But then the next match came around. I remember this was the first match my parents, uh, showed up to, you know, and, uh, I wouldn't see him again until my regional finals uh, as a senior, but you know, you know, that's all right. They had things that they had to take care of, but I remember this match vividly because I got tossed on my back and got pinned in a headlock. And I remember feeling like a gut in the pit, like a pit, like a peach pit almost in the mud. <laughs> that's a Michael Lelon from Michael Lee poetry. Shout out to him. But, uh, I felt like a sinking feeling in my stomach. Like, man, my parents just showed up to my match unexpectedly too I didn't think they were going to be there and I just lost like the, you know I just got trashed <laughs> it, it wasn't really the best of times but uh you know I joined this opportunity as wrestling you know and immediately the first thing I experienced was a status decrease but everybody's around me like going we're going to keep going and you know there's no quit in me you know and so I'm like let's go on let's just see what this results in and like I said, every wrestler, JV wrestler, you want to go to county title. You know, I didn't really care about it, but it would be cool if I went. But only one person in each weight class could go. And I believe my weight class was 120 or it was 126, actually. And uh, so I had to wrestle against this guy in the 126 weight class who was a sophomore. His name was Alex Seacott. And uh, Alex Seacott, he, he, was a, he was a pretty – he was, he was an average wrestler, you know. He wasn't – but everybody would make fun of him and say, oh, he's bad. But he, I think he was a pretty – he was a pretty decent wrestler, pretty solid guy. Um, long story short, you know, we wrestle off to go, at the end of the year when I'm 11-9 to go to the JV County title. It was my freshman year. He's a sophomore. And Alex just puts me on my back and pins me. And uh, I end up not going to the JV County uh, counties that year. But we still had a few matches in the year after that for some reason. I guess like a so long or song or something. So we had one more invitation, which was at Catonsville School in the area. And I ended up breaking my thumb anyway. And so I wouldn't have went to the county counties anyway. But, you know, I broke my thumb and that was the end of my season. And so that season ended pretty badly. It ended pretty poorly. 
But for some reason, uh, you know, the sensation or the idea of being a county, you know, a county champ, a JV county champ was stuck in my head. It was ingrained in my mind. Like I was like, you know, like I, I want to do this. I, I don't know why I wanted to do it, but I just, you know, it, 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 it felt like I had become a part of something. Like I said, like, like I had like an identity now, like I'm a wrestler. Yeah, we're wrestlers, you know. It, this was my group. This was my people. You know, I had friends in the room now. I had family in the room now. And, you know, they cared about me and considered me, you know, in an intimate way because we were wrestlers, because we had that bond and no one else in the school had that bond. These were the football players. These were the tennis players. You know, we were wrestlers and this was my family now. And so that was the first instance where I really felt kind of like a community, where I kind of felt like a love. And so after I broke my thumb, I would still go to practice with the varsity and I would be in the room just doing pushups and watching them and observing them. And, uh, you know, I, I just had this obsession with it. Like, you know, I want to be around these people because they make me feel good. They make me feel noticed, whereas I felt invisible the entire time. And so, you know, I start I start developing a little interest in wrestling. And when I go home, I'm like, man, I want to do this and I want to be good. I want to be like Scott and I'll be like Dave. Dave actually took second at counties that year because he got, uh, I think, caught in a headlock by this, you know, this guy named Montrese Tinsley. And uh, that literally broke my heart, you know, because that Dave, Dave to this day is my hero. Being the same age as me, that was my hero. I looked up to him. I look up to him. You know what I'm saying? I could say Scott was like, you know what I'm saying? He was like the light in the clouds, but Dave was Yahweh. Don't get it. Don't get it confused. And um, man, so it meant a lot to me. So I went home over the summer. I wanted to be like these dudes, you know. Uh, we're in a community and these are like the top of the community, the most esteemed. I seen what they had and I wanted it, you know. Um, and I remember, so we came back the second year. I mean, I, over the summertime, I started watching all these different YouTube videos and based on some of the suggestions my coach gave me, hey, you should learn an ankle pick. You should learn these different moves. I'm watching YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video and I'm getting introduced into the bigger culture of wrestling globally and worldwide. I remember that was 2011. I started watching JB Jordan Barrows, and he won his first uh, world title. And then he won he won the Olympic title. And I remember just watching highlights of him. Like, man, this dude is insane. Like, I want to be like Jordan. You know what I mean? Um, it was phenomenal. I started watching Kale Sanderson. I started picking up on guys like Aaron Pico and Spencer Lee and Chance Marstella. Man, Chance Marstella was undefeatable back then. I remember this video on YouTube with uh, Chance Marstella and Cody Wirecock, the Wire Choke. I don't know how to pronounce his name. And Chance was like, you know, you know, it was a 2-1 match, but Chance smoked him. Chance was undefeated in high school, won four state titles and everything. He was a monster. Um, we wouldn't learn that he would win four, four state titles and be undefeated till later because he was in high school the same time I was in high school. But anyhow, um, you know, I started listening, you know, getting, you know, introduced to this entire culture. And I started learning all these different moves and just started nerding out on it. Um, you've probably experienced this, right? In, 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 in different areas, you know, maybe you weren't a wrestler, but maybe you were something else. And you know, that experience when you start feeling like the energy of a culture of, of a people around you, you feel like you're part of something bigger than you. Um, so the next year I came back and, um, I wanted it. I don't know what it was. I wanted it. And I felt like people kept snubbing me, man. Like people ain't believing me, you know, I wanted it though. You know, I lost to Seacott the year, you know, Alex Seacott the year before, but man, I wanted it, you know, and they kept snubbing me. Like, I remember, you know, Dave was in the room working hard and everybody like, man, Dave a lock, man, you know, Dave, Dave going, you know, and Dave is a lock to win a county title, but I felt like I was a lock, you know, 
you get that confidence. You feel like I'm like, I remember Cullen Jones, another guy on our team. They bumped him up to varsity that year. Man, I was pissed, man. I was like, man, you should put me on varsity coach. You know, I wanted it. I wanted the shine. And I felt like, you know, everybody was getting the shine and they deserved it. They were hard workers. They were beasts, you know, way better than me. Most definitely. You know, I wasn't very good. You know, I was 11, nine the year prior, but I watched these videos and I, I just had a fire in me. And I was like, man, I'm going to do it this year. Um, and so the year goes on. We get into this war. Boom, boom. War after war after war. And I start winning. I'm like, uh, I start winning. You know, I'm pretty OK. I'm pretty decent this year based off what I watched and based off what I learned and all these practices that, have, you know, that went on. And, uh, you know, like this, this is this is this is this is happening. Like, it's, it's insane. And so the year comes, you know, coming to a close and I got a pretty good record. I was like. 21 and three or something like that you know i lost three times but i won 20 times and uh you know another guy on the team dave was obviously i think he was undefeated or he had lost once or something like that and another guy on the team perrier publico uh he was undefeated undefeated but he got in Pitago too that year haha perrier and um he was all for some time but he was a beast period had done jujitsu so he was ahead of the curve like he was insane um i was wrestling i believe at the time at Perry was wrestling at 132 and I was wrestling at 138. Okay. And, um, so coming to the, you know, end of that year, it was this, uh, tournament. Um, I don't remember where it was. I want to say Delaney, but it wasn't Delaney. It was at some school. It was a black and red school. I don't remember what it was. Um, but we had this tournament and it was this guy in my weight class from Perry Hall, which we, you know, became friends later. His name was Nick Georgiopoulos and he was a beast. He was undefeated. You know, he was in my weight class and uh, I was going to have to face him at that tournament. I didn't know he was undefeated at the time, but he was. And uh, he won that tournament and I ended up taking third in that tournament because I lost to the guy that he beat. And uh, so that tournament passes. That's just a little detail to keep in your mind. Um and so the, we, we come to the end of the tournament and it's like the week where it's like two weeks before JV counties. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty uneasy because I've lost a few people this year. And, uh, I know it's some monsters at counties. I know it's going to be a completely different ballpark. My heart's racing like that entire week. My heart was racing that entire year thinking about counties and thinking about actually competing at that tournament. And, um, I remember we were in the room and one of the last days in that two week period preparing for counties right before that weekend would start up. Um, I remember my coach, you know, coach, uh, coach Carter, his name is Kenny Carter, coach Carter showing us this move called the Grammy roll. And I don't know why, but something in my head just said, pay attention to this move. You know, it's pretty cool. Cause it's a, it's a ridiculous move. It's like a cartwheel, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, so we went into the JV County tournament that week. I remember driving to Hereford uh, in the freezing cold morning with my parents. Was it my parents that drove me there? How did I get there? I don't remember what it was. But, you know, we got there uh, very early in the morning. It was at Hereford. We got into school. You know, I had like a blue Gatorade with me because blue Gatorades was lucky. That particular color. I had my lucky socks on. You know, man, we was ready to go. Uh, I remember they were drinking Pedialyte. You know, everybody was, you know, when you get to a tournament you know, you go where you weigh in and everybody's sitting in the bleachers. You know, you just kind of like it's a nervous tension in the air. Like, what is about to happen? This is all I work for. This is all I dreamed of. This is all that matters at this point in time. And then, man, and I remember, you know, uh, Coach Sullivan, man, Coach Rob Sullivan, he bought he bought out the, uh, the chunky Skippy peanut butter. <laughs> and I was eating the peanut butter and bananas. And, man, I was getting jacked up because, like, we I had a cut. I believe I cut weight for that tournament and made uh 
138. And uh, I, I cut weight for that tournament. And I remember the brackets came out. The brackets came out, which is like the seedings, the seeding charts. You know, you can see who's seated where. And uh, I see in the tournament, it's weird because, you know, I'm, I'm seated three. I'm seated number three. And the guy above me was the guy who beat, uh, you know, who won that other tournament. It was Nick Georgopoulos. And he was undefeated. And I'm like, okay, he's the second seed. You know, what, what, what's going on here? And so that means I have to beat him in, a, in the semifinals to even get to the finals. It's like a scam. And the guy at the top, I remember his name vividly, Jabari McClain. And Pete, there were so many whispers going around the gym like, this dude is different. Jabari is different. I thought Georgiopoulos was different. They said Jabari is different too. I'm like, bro, what is, you know, they said he should have bumped up to varsity this year. Because what he would do is he would train the summers with the Mad Cats Pikesville program. He went to Pikesville. Uh, but Jabari, man, Jabari was a monster. He was nasty. Literally this entire year, he was undefeated. He was tech falling everybody, which means you beat them so bad, they just end the match. Um, he was a monster. He was a monster. And they didn't even think Nick could beat him, Nick Georgopoulos, you know. And Nick, you know, did, like, the programs as a youth, and he's been wrestling for years. And I'm the third seed, and I got to beat both of them if I want to win this tournament. And I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, but we got to do something. We got to do something. This is my dream. And at the time, like all these motivational videos, I watch all these motivational videos. Like uh, I watched the Jordan Burroughs clip. It had this video of him wrestling for his uh, Olympic gold medal and all the highlights in between them and his first world title. Um, you know, where he it was clips of him like just going crazy. And I would listen to that clip and just get, you know, it was like that song was in the background. The clip like, sail, sail, you know. And so I would put that phone, you know, when I warmed up for and run around the wrestling mats. And you know, get get prepped for my first matches. I would pay. I would play that in my headphones, and I would also play this one um, little motivational video. It's this dude. You know, he got Eric Thomas playing in the background of the video, and he'd be running on the beach and running in the sand and doing all these workouts. It was like number one most motivational video in the world, or something like that. That's what they call. That was the title of the video. Um, but it was Eric Thomas, and it was that little speech he would do. And I'll play that in my headphones too. Like when you want to be as badly as be successful as badly as you want to breathe, then you'll be successful. You know, that's what you know, that's all I played in my head. Eye of the tiger. And so we get to started on the day and the match is started. Uh I blew past the first guy. I don't really remember how or where he was from. Boom, I beat him out. Um, I believe I had a bye in the first round, which means I, I didn't have to face anybody. I went to the second round automatically. So I beat him, and my next opponent on the day was Nick Georgopoulos. Um this was a tough day for a lot of people, man. A lot of our teammates had lost in the earlier rounds. I think Dave had lost in one of the earlier rounds by a complete cheat or a complete fluke or something like that. And that really got me nervous. It really got me scared because, man, this is my hero, man. And you know what I'm saying? Like, for him to lose, this is some stiff competition, you know. I got to really be on, on, on point, you know. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know. Like, it just meant a lot to me. Like, you know, so I had Nick Jordropoulos, man. We get to tussling. Boom. He takes me down early on. I'm like, oh, man, man, what am I going to do? I escaped from the takedown. Boom. Um, I believe the first period he took me down and I escaped. And then the second period, I don't even remember how this match went, man. Oh, how did this match went? Then the second period, you know, he got in this, you know, he, how did this go? First period. Maybe he didn't get a takedown. I think he took me down for his period, though. You know, so what was the score? The score was 
period. Okay, so this is how it went. The first period, he took me down, right? And uh, I don't think I escaped from him that period. He rolled me out that entire period, and that was it. So he's up 2-0. and oh. The second period comes around, and... You know, I'm, I think I, I think he chose bottom or something like that. And I started on top. And for some reason, I was able to hold him down that entire period. But he's still up 2-0. and oh, Right? And so the third period comes around. And this is all I remember about this match. Because this is literally like, my, my heart rate is jamming. My heart rate is stumping so hard, man. I'm just in a scramble, in a fight for my life. Just trying to recall the videos. Like, you know what I'm saying? It is a blur and a flurry of movements. You know what I'm saying? You never feel like the the ah, the intensity of the moment, man, the, the fire of it. And um, woo, like oh, and I remember the third period. I, you know, the breath blows the whistle. Boo! I, I immediately get up. I pop up. Woo! I'm running. You know, and then I turn around and we battling. We battling. He's up two one. He two one. Thirty seconds on the clock. I remember shooting in on a double leg, and I don't remember how I felt the strength in me to do it because I was burnt out. But I blew through him. Boom! Took him down, bah, took him to the mat, and he was gassed. I don't know why, but he was gassed, and I managed to hold him on. Ref, uh, ref blows the whistle for the last, you know, the last uh, seconds on the clock went out. 3-2, I won the match, boom. I don't know how, but I made it to the finals. I made it to the finals. I was like, yo, like, I was like, man, if anything happens today, at least I'm going home with a silver. Like, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> It was so exciting. There's so, so much energy in that room that day. People were like, what? Dallas made it to the finals? How is that possible? Oh, but anyway, he got Jabari. Here's Jabari. It's over with. You know, it's over with. I don't know. I felt light at the time. I felt light. Period had also made it to the finals. And so the way the finals work is at, at Hereford, you know, uh, they clear out. It's three mats on the floor usually, but they clear out all the mats and they leave one mat in the middle of the room. And they turn off all the lights, but they hang one light over the mat in the middle. And so the whole room is dark except for this one spot, like the grand stage where it all goes down. And then they start slowly at the lower weight classes. So they start at 106 and then they go to 112 and then they go to 120 and then they go to 126 and then they go to 132. And it's Perrier's match and Perrier isn't a dog fight, but Perrier is a dog. Like you cannot stop this man. He actually wins the county title. And I'm like, what, man? I'm watching this from the back room because we warm up in the back room before the county finals. It's two doors. Um, we're warming up back there and literally in the darkness watching the spotlight from back behind. Like, you know how gym doors are like. It's like the back room of the gym. And it's a one door, a one double door on one side and another door on, you know, we're in the same back room. But like, I don't know, like, uh, it's like a gym and there's like a closet in the back of the gym. Imagine it's like a long closet, a long and wide closet, like a room. And that room has two doors parallel to each other and so we're in the same room but we're looking out two separate exit ways at the same mat you know imagine uh like a triangle you know we're at the bottom corners of the triangle and we're looking out to the mat and the mat is the top of the triangle okay and so he's jogging on the other side getting warmed up this dude is scary man like he he he, he looked like he bout it you know and my heart is pounding my heart is racing you know uh i don't know what's going to happen but period man his match ended very quickly for some reason it flew by and it was time to go it was time to go i remember this literally it was time to go and so you know the first person they called out to the mat i believe was jabari boom he runs through the door they said no jabari mclean to the mat 
boom, from Pikesville, boom, he runs out of the door. And, you know, it felt surreal to hear, even hear them call my name. They was like, nailed to the mat, Eastern Tech, Dallas Prater. And I remember running out, like, just everything in me is just trembling. I'm just so much energy. And I'm just like, let's go, you know, because <laughs> Carter said, go out and just scream, let's go. And I put my hands up and I just said, let's go. And I ran out through the door and, like, see my teammates, they're on the side, like, yeah, let's do this. And then I get to the mat, man, in the middle of the light, and everything's dark around it. I can't see nobody. All I can see is Jabari in front of me, and a whole entire crowd goes quiet. And so what happens from there is, you know, I go up to Jabari. He's in his stance already. I lean down. I shake his hand. And uh, you can find this video on YouTube. It's at Two Gamers View. <laughs> um, uh, but the whole entire arena just goes silent. And you know what? All my nerves when I shook his hand just went away i was ready for this i was so ready for this so the first period i'm just coming at him I'm going in on a shot at the shot at the shot but then he catches me in a cradle a cradle is a pinning move and he's turning me over and uh the rest counting but then he doesn't get any points and he's counting again he doesn't get any points the first period was it was it was it was a dog fight he got me in a cradle he locked it up real good all he had to do was tilt me over and pin me but i'm fighting bro i'm fighting i will not be taking it you know you're not going to do this to me right now not in front of carter not in front of dave not in front of all these people out here watching me bro not in front of my team not in front of my coach you know you're not going to do eastern like that so that period flies by uh, I don't know if he got points for the cradle or what, but then the second period comes comes around and he gets me in the cradle again. I'm, oh, I'm fighting, I'm fighting, I'm fighting it. I don't know how this whole entire match is such a blur in memory transpired, but all I remember was the last period had begun and we fought all the way to the last period. And I don't know how it started like this, but the light's intense. I'm exhausted. He exhausted. We're on our last bits of strength. I mean, you, ride, you wrestle the whole match, you're going to be tired. And I was so tired because I fought so hard, man. And I don't remember what the score was, but for some reason, I think it was, it, I, I'm pretty sure it was tied. No, 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 no. It wasn't tied. What was the score? It was either tied or he was up one point. You know, I believe, I believe he was up one point. Okay. With 12 seconds left on the clock. And I was on bottom because he had just taken me down. And I remember we were set to the center. And I got up. I'm trying to escape because I got to get the escape point to tie it. And then we can go into overtime and we'll fight it out in overtime. It's like six, seven or something like that. And so, boom, boom. I try to escape and he runs me out of bounds. And it was like seven seconds on the clock. And we go back to the center. I'm down. Mind you, in wrestling, if you get up from the bottom, you get a point. And that's what I'm going for. Because if we get a point, score is tied, we go into overtime. And I remember, you know, my, my accounting of this story since it's been, what, almost 10 years at this point? Nine years since my freshman year of high school? Eight years, maybe? Um, I'm 23, just turned 23. So, but the only thing is on my mind, I get on bottom, man. And I'm hearing in my head that little recording of Eric Thomas. I think that's his name. And he's saying, if you want to be successful as badly as you want to breathe, then you will be successful. That's all I can hear in my mind. That's all I can hear. And so what happens at that moment? I imagine that. He's on top of me and he's holding me underwater and I want to breathe. I want to breathe. I imagine if he holds me there and I drown and that's the end of my life. I want to breathe. I want air and I'm going to come up for air. But how can I do it? For some reason, something just flashed in my mind and I had a flashback, a memory of Coach Kenny Carter. 
show me that Grammy role. And I don't know what made me go to that move. But the ref blew the whistle. Boom, I snapped out of my imagination. I got up. I started trying to get up a little bit. But then I fooled him. I switched it around. Boom, hit a Grammy roll. Boom, as I'm Grammy rolling, I'm rolling out of this position. But it kind of like is awkward because of the way he's holding me. And instead of getting an escape and escaping him, I somehow got a reversal. And then I'm up one point. I'm winning. It's like seven seconds left on the clock. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm behind him. And I just let him go. Like, like, I, oh, yeah, the score must have been tied because I did let him go and give him the escape point. OK, so I let him go. And so I'm still up by one point because he gets the escape now. And now I'm one point up. Yes, yeah, what happens. OK, so it was tied. And that Granby roll put me up two points. Yeah, put me up two points. OK, and then um. I let him go because I'm like, oh, I'm on top. I got two points. I let him go and I'm backing up and he's trying to like chase me, chase me, chase me. And he tries to do like a lat drop on me, but he falls on his own back. And then the ref blows the whistle. I'm like, what just happened? What just happened? I'm shocked. If you watch the video, Two Gamers Views is the profile. Um, Man, uh, I'm at the I'm the 138 guy, lanky black dude with the headgear on. Um, I'm in complete shock. I'm in complete shock. We go to the center and the ref just raises my hand and I won. I'm a JV County champion. I'm a JV County champion. And I go over to my coach and just give him a hug, man. I give him a hug. Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't even, and this is all, this is all, this entire last part is on video. I'm, I'm just shocked. Like, I'm just completely silent. Nothing is going through my mind at all. It's just pure, like, emotion. And I walk around the mat after the match is over. And I don't know, I just run up to Perrier and we just give, he just gave me a hug. And Dave and everybody, you can hear Dave in the video when I got that last takedown. He's like, let's go! And like everybody's coming off the bleachers and we're getting hugs. And, and I remember just telling Perrier, two, two, we got two. You know, as the two champions, like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, man. And I remember just being so, like, out of, like, spaced out on the bus ride home. Um, just completely spaced out, like just in pure, just crack. The emotion was crack. It was ecstasy. It was just such a different raw emotion. Like everything about it, like the, 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 I've never felt that way before in my life. And I've hardly ever felt that way since like the raw flush of serotonin to my brain was unlike any other sensation. I felt like light. I felt like air, like not even air. I felt like light. I felt like just like I was emitting just, just com- like just a lightness and a featherness and an airiness to me. Like I felt like a literal photon and like I was just hovering through the day after that. Like literally my brain was just, it felt like a dream. Like it was unreal. Like it didn't feel like reality anymore. That feeling was, it may be the biggest rush of serotonin I've ever had in my life. And I can't say that, you know, because, you know, that would be kind of disrespectful to my relationship because that's even like, that's been one of the most, that's been the most beautiful thing for me. But this was, it was a, it was a, it was a very close second. This was insanity the way I felt. And I remember just standing outside of Hereford, I mean, outside of, out of the school, when we got outside of the school, wearing this medal around my neck that I had won and carrying this bracket that I have to this day. And, uh. I remember it just slightly, lightly just, it might have been the first snow of the year. The snow is just lightly coming down. I'm just standing under the light, just waiting for my parents. And um, I'm just sitting there in, like, in this daze, in this dream. 
and it, it was just you know it was just amazing and, and that's when I became a wrestler at that very moment that's when I became a wrestler and you're probably wondering how does this tie to mass movements I'm going to tie it into you don't worry about it I'm just recounting my life um that's when I became a wrestler that's that's when things changed for me and and the thing is like I was in this community but not only was I part of this community I was significant in this community I realized I might have lacked in every other area of life I might have come to this high school and I looked and dressed poor and you know I was black in a majority white high school if that matters because I felt it did matter at the time and you know, even looking back, it mattered in a lot of ways in terms of how we socialize and get along with people because these are kids and kids are really unfiltered um, in their expression. Um, but none of that mattered at that point in time. It didn't matter that they had cars and they're 16 and that they had boats and big houses. It just mattered that we was part of a team and that, you know, I was somebody to that team. I was significant in that, you know, in, in that way. I learned at that moment that if I could win, I could, I could, I could have love. People loved me when I won. People, people, people respected me, looked up to me when I won. And that was the first time I ever felt that feeling. And it was like cracking. It was addicting. And so I began, I started wrestling every summertime since then. Sophomore, sophomore summer, I was in the gym, you know, out in Dundalk wrestling every single day to recapture that feeling over and over and over again. Me and Jabari, we would clash. I'm gonna tell this, tell that story about me and Jabari uh, a little later. Um, we clashed multiple times throughout the year after that, and I want to give credit to him because he's such a competitor. He's such a fighter. Um, my last match in high school, uh, after I won, um, after I lost uh, in my first match at states, um, we met in the consolation bracket, uh, which is the bracket to get third place. And my last match of high school. He literally smoked me like he 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 did me dirty, man. He did me dirty that match. Um, and I remember seeing his teammates in the stands, just like he might have experienced then, just cheering and just. I also beat him for the regional finals that year, so like a week before states. <laughs> um, that video was on YouTube too. But uh, he smoked me in that match, and I remember seeing his teammates cheering. And I couldn't feel nothing but happiness for him and them for how hard he had worked and how hard he had grinded. But high school was literally, I obsessed with wrestling. I didn't go to class. You know, I did go to class, but I didn't pay attention in class because all I cared about was wrestling and winning and wrestling because that's the place I felt like I had love and attention and, and, and pride in what I did and value. Whereas in every other domain, I had felt valueless before. And so I graduate and business was a conduit for me to recapture that emotion. I wanted a community like the wrestlers from business. I wanted love from the wrestlers from business. Okay. And uh my whole idea was that you know you sell these people things and you serve them with the products that you sell them or you give them something cool even though I was self-serving at the time. You give them something cool and they become fans and they love you. That was my idea of uh what it meant to create a movement around your products. Would it, you know, that was my idea of how, also how I would um, get love for my products. I feel like people buy from me and they buy the subscription from the Beat Buddy system, my first business, and they would just love me, you know? Ironically enough, in 2018, when I'm searching for this love, when I'm searching for this community, when I'm searching for this family that I just departed from, um, 
you know, I go on to create this first business idea called the Beat Buddy System. And I remember with the Beat Buddy System, um, the first ad that I created was an ad, you know, was Beat Buddy System was a problem of mine. It was a passion of mine, actually. You know, it started as a passion because I felt like I'm a poor guy. I'm a young kid. I was a, what, 20, 19, you know, and I don't have beats. I don't have instrumentals because everything online costs too freaking much. And I'm working this job and I can't afford that. I can't pay for it. And so I remember my first ad for the Beat Buddy system I created and constructed. It was like, yo, you know, the producers are evil. That's what I said. And a lot of people didn't like that, man. It was it was a mess. I said, the producers are evil. You know, they're trying to where all rappers want to do is create music and create sound. And um, producers are trying to marginalize us and stop us from doing that. But I want to help you. I want to give you free beats, you know. And so if you sign up with me. Because I'm not just a producer that doesn't know anything how it feels to be a rapper. I'm a rapper that just happens to produce. This was I was saying what I was saying in the video ad way back in 2018. Um, if you just sign up with me, I'll give you free beats every week, and you can pay for more if you want them. And uh, ironically enough, man, I had like this thing called Team Rapper and Team Producer. It was a hashtag, uh, and I think it started with somebody that actually responded to that ad. People started hitting me up in droves. People were hitting me up in insane numbers. Like, you can still... People DM me about that to this day. To this day. Literally. So many people were messaging me like, oh my God. Like, really? Like, man, this is insane. Thank you, man. You're, you're amazing. People were praising me. Like, you know, I got about 300 people to sign up to my email list to send them beats in like a few days. Like, two, three days. Which I didn't realize the value of that back then. But if you really realize, man, that is massively, massively valuable because a list is very important. Uh, if you listen to Russell Brunson, he says a list is the core of all businesses. It's the lifeblood of business, you know, and I didn't know that at the time, so I didn't really think much of it. But, uh, man, people were coming to, more, to, to me in hordes, like literally like just, you know, people hashtag like, yeah, team artist, team artist. Let's go. Beat buddy system. You know, uh, so many of these DMs like, man, I want to be around you. This is what some guy said. I like the way you move. You're a genius, man. How can I be around you more? Um, I still have all these DMs. Um, I might post them or something like that if you want to see those. DM me on Juni Prayer on Facebook, uh, on Instagram. I'll send you if you want to see them. Uh, these people were insane. But at the same time, there was a, a an, an opposing force. A lot of producers, particularly on Twitter, like they people would screenshot my ad on Instagram and they post it on Twitter. And a lot of producers on Twitter like bullying me like man these producers were so mad like the producers on twitter was like man you're stupid you're an idiot i hope you die so there was a, a overwhelming majority of positivity but it was a, a on the other side people were just raging against me like it was a it was a storm it was a storm and it really affected me because this was my first business endeavor it affected me very badly emotionally the negativity and the positivity blew my head up a lot so it was i was in a very strange place for this first system and uh it was great it was it was it was it was beautiful and um it was hard to recreate you know the beat buddy system was something that caught wildfire and i hadn't known why it caught wildfire but i didn't really appreciate it for what it was because i didn't understand anything about list building and business and things like that i was like i want sales like these these people loving me doesn't have anything to do with sales 
you know, because sales is the ultimate show of love. Sales, you know, like I said, I, I love the culture. I love the people around me. I love they were hashtagging. And I would take, you know, the things that people were saying about me on Twitter and post it on Instagram. And people on Instagram who were their artists was like, no, man, all these people still follow me. Just look through my, through my stuff. Like, no, man, team artists. Uh. Like, it was like a war. Like, it was crazy. You know, uh, you could find the, the negative comments on my Twitter to this very day, too. My Twitter is also Juni Prayer. Just scroll down. I don't use Twitter, but you can find it, uh, it pretty quickly because I don't retweet anything. It should be up there. Um, but yeah, like uh, it, it, it was a storm, and you know it was hard to recreate. You know, the next business I had gone to was uh, selling courses, I think, and uh, I started running ads for courses, and I was surprised because I didn't get any traction like that. No one cared, and. Um, you know, it, it was concerning because at this point in time, I knew the value of some of these things. And I thought it would just work like I had before. I've been listening. You know, I stopped on the Beat Buddy system April 2018 and I started building a course in September of 2018. So I had been listening to the Marketing Secret podcast for probably about eight months now. And I understood, OK, well, you need a thousand true fans is all you need to really run a business. You know, and I wanted those true fans. I wanted that love. I wanted that community. Um. And I don't know why I dropped the B-Buddy system because I, I just didn't, I, I undervalued it. It was everything I wanted, but at the same time, I wanted to get paid too. Um, because that, you know, that's what the people immediately around me, you know, my parents and everybody, friends really value and I wanted them to respect me. And so I went on to building the courses and I remember running ads for the course and it didn't get any reaction. Like no one commented, no one cared. It was like, oh, this is a marketing course, another marketing guy. Um, and then from there, where did I go? Um, I don't know. I, I tried a bunch of different things. You know, I'm blanking on exactly what I tried next, but it was it was some type of course that I tried next for sure. Um, and then it was ghostwriting. And when I was getting into ghostwriting, I was running ads for that too. But the, the two year span that I tried running ads, I never recaptured that feeling of the Beat Buddy system. And it was something that I sorely missed and I sorely regretted letting go of. You know, I didn't have the culture. I didn't have the family. I didn't have the fan base that I wanted. I didn't have a tribe around me that understood my ideas and was impacted by the things that I put out anymore. And that's what I wanted. That's what I valued. I wanted the tribe. I wanted the community, you know, and to make impact on this community. Um, is that something you relate to? You know, uh, just to ask you, the viewer, um, just to, you know, reinvigorate your mind, though. So I want to position you some questions sometimes. But man, uh, it was something that I was totally missing. I didn't understand why these things had gone the way they had gone. You know, and it wasn't until I, I remember coming across this episode by Russell Brunson, you know, on his Marketing Secrets podcast. And he was saying he went to a tech conference one day. And this was the event that changed his life. He was at a tech conference or something like that. It was like about nerdy, boring stuff, computers. And uh, these are in his own words. And he, he says he remembers going to that tech conference and they were giving presentations and people in there were crying and breaking down and jumping for joy and expressing things that weren't natural to a tech conference. And, you know, he went up to the owner of the tech conference and said, this is just technology why are people reacting this way and the owner of the tech conference said because this is not just a business this is more than that this is a culture this is a movement and he said that was the idea for him that changed everything 
And I remember listening to his podcast and him him explaining, look, here's here's the thing that you got to understand. You don't need a mass of people to support your business. You need a thousand true fans. And the way you create a thousand true fans is through creating a culture, through creating a movement around your business. Creating a movement is the reason why that despite anything, people, they will never leave click funnels for another funnel builder, even if the price is lower. Even if they have better features, even if it's a better overall service, because they're part of our culture, because they're emotionally invested and because they, they identify with this. They're part of a movement and they're in it because they identify and it's a part of who they are, not just the business that, that, they, that they partake in, that they can just swap out. And in that moment, it made me realize some things about myself that I hadn't thought of before. A business, a product, it's easily exchangeable. Like my courses, anybody was making those courses. But a community, a tribe, and a culture, those feelings that we all got from bonding under this beat buddy system in this this thing, this swirl of things that was happening, that's, that's, a, that's a movement. People don't love you based on you giving them products. They love you from you giving them shelter from the rest of the world. And when he said that, instantly it turned a dial in my mind that it took me all the way up into this year to understand that the products and the services that we put out into the world don't really matter as much as the culture that we build around them, the movements that we build around them. And it really got me to turn the dial. Like I said, two years later, this was this entire journey from switching from competitive mindset to collaborative mindset. It really taught me that the thing that matters most is the service to these people, but service beyond the service. You can give them a service, but you can't just serve them on a logical level. You have to serve them on an emotional level. Every human being in the world, this is what I realized, every human being in the world, they want to be part of something that increases their status. You know, they want to be in the in group and not in the out group. If you love wrestling, you want to be part of the wrestlers and not part of anything else. And it kind of put into my head that, okay, you have to build a home for people in an identity for people in a, in a conduit for people to express themselves through. And it kind of got me thinking, man, the reason that I got what I wanted in terms of community and family and love from the Beat Buddy system because it was the first little attempt at a mass movement. It was the first little attempt at a mass movement. That's why I had traction, whereas these other ads never had traction at all. And so it kind of got me thinking, you know, Russell Brunson has his secret to teach us about building mass movements, building tribes. It got me interested. And so I went to this book called uh i went to go grab his book called expert secrets the expert secrets shipped in and in the book he talked about mass movements okay and what are the components of creating a mass movement like i had with the beat buddy system and also like i had if you go back with wrestling because wrestling at the end of the day it was a mass movement every sports team is a mass movement Sports are just a game if you break it down logically. But if you break it down emotionally, it's much more. And people riot and fight over sports. Countries are mass movements. You know, it's just a piece of land, but it makes people feel like it's more. 
and you're willing to war and bomb and kill over it. That's the power of a mass movement. And so I started to open this book. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about what are the components of a mass movement. And so if you open the book, the first chapter, section one, creating your mass movement. There are the three components of a mass movement right there. The first component is the charismatic leader or the attractive character. Um, You know, that's the guy. That's the leader of the movement. You know, the guy that, you know, is going to lead this culture, this group of people until the promised land. That's the first component. You know, it's usually somebody who is living the life or already where the people within this culture want to be. The second component is the future-based cause. Where is this character, where is this leader bringing this group to? Where, where, where you know, where, you know, what is, what, is the, what is the purpose of this group? Where are they headed to? You understand what I mean? Um, but the cause has to be placed in the future because, you know, something that's in the current, you know, is something that people already have, you know, they already, they already have this. Why would they want to follow you? Where are they following you to there? You know, where they're standing right now it has to be a future, future based cause. And the last component of a mass movement is the new opportunity. What is the new vehicle that isn't the old vehicle that you can propose to this group in order to get them on board. Let's see an example of it, the new opportunity. Uh, the new opportunity is put in place because it's like the old opportunity, the old vehicles that people have already been trying and failing with, they're frustrated with those vehicles. When they think of those vehicles, their reference experience tells them this vehicle is bad, this vehicle is negative, because all you experience with this vehicle is failure. For example, you say, hey, if this is the old opportunity or the opportunity that they're in, Hey, let's do intermittent fasting. The reference experiences that they have of intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting, it's like, oh, I remember being hungry, or I remember feeling feeling bad, I remember not losing any weight, and so they they withdraw away from it. They don't want to lose any more status from coming into this opportunity because they already lost status from not losing weight and announcing that they were trying it the first time. They can't identify with that. The new opportunity is like something completely new, something that they've never tried. There's a book about this called play bigger it talks about uh, category design you should definitely read that also russell brunson recommended that i learned that from him but the new opportunity is something that doesn't it isn't tainted by past failed trials it's like oh you tried intermittent fasting yeah intermittent fasting sucks but i got something that actually works let's try the keto diet oh ketos i never heard of that yeah it's different it works you know you'll feel better you'll be the first one on board to to hear about this join me on this mission and so those are the three components of the mass movement. It's the charismatic leader, the attractive character, the future-based cause, and the new vehicle to get them to that future-based cause. I remember opening the Expert Secrets book and reading that and feeling kind of mind-blown about it. Like, wow, if I really look back at it, look back at it, you know, I was the attractive character of my business. A rapper who understood like them that learned how to produce on my own and now had what they wanted. My cause was to get rid of the evil producers, get rid of their monopoly and bring us all to a future where we can all have beats and be creative and make music. And the new opportunity that I had presented, oh, don't just buy beats off regular beat sites or download them off YouTube. Get them through this new thing 
It's a subscription-based service, but it's not just regular beats. This is the Beat Buddy system. And that's what made people go crazy. And in realizing that, I realized in order to have the success I want, I have to get a thousand true fans. And the only way to get a thousand true fans, I have to replicate that. It was part of that idea that had began to switch my thinking because they realized I had to think deeply about what people felt, deeply about what people experienced and do something for people beyond what I thought I had to offer. I had to offer them something extravagant. And when I started to realize that, that's what kind of shifted my mindset also from competitive to collaborative thinking. Think about the ways I've been feeling through the culture that Russell Brunson has created uh, with us being funnel hackers and all that. I wanted to deliver that experience to people, you know, and I realized that that was more important because of what it's done for me, even at the expense of my own self. I started to realize that impact and building a tribe uh, to cause that impact also at a larger scale was more important than self-significance. Even furthermore, let's look back at it. Uh, I keep saying that, man. If you think about 2016, you know, and this is something also that popped in my mind and why, you know, a lot of politicians might have felt like, okay, we got. We got the reins on this election 2016 and we got the reins on this election 2020. Um, But we're sadly undermined. Oh, sadly, if depending on who you are. You know, I don't care about politics. Sorry. But, (laughs) you know, they were undermined, you know, unfortunately for them. Because um, Donald Trump won. And why is that? Because Donald, you know, while the other politicians, they were offering a vehicle that was the vehicle that they already had. You know, it wasn't a future-based cause. You know, and if you look at it, Russell Brunson says this in his podcast, in his podcast all the time. No president in, president in history has ever won with a cause placed in a present, with a slogan based in a present. People want to go somewhere. People want a new vehicle. And so if you look at it, um, you know, the 2016 election was a masterclass of creating a mass movement. Their charismatic leader, Donald Trump, you know, um, their future based cause. We want to make America great again. It gives them something to look forward to and to aspire to Uh, and their new opportunity. Um. You know, let's have somebody in office that's not a part of the quote-unquote establishment. Let's have someone who is not a politician, that's not in business. Because these businessmen and these politicians, they never do anything right. You understand what I mean? And there goes, if you read the Expert Secrets book, go to expertsecrets.com. It's a beautiful book. Um, Like I said, I don't get paid to say that. I'm not, I do have an affiliate link, but I'm not posting my affiliate link because I'm just not. Um, If you do read the book, there, you know, it breaks down those three categories way more. You know, but um, that's just a perfect example of, you know, a mass movement seen in real life and real person. So no matter how much political experience he had, no matter the facts of the situation, no matter the policies that he put out, because that's how all the other politicians were trying to win. He overrided all of that by having a movement. When you have a movement, the features, a.k.a. the policies or the price, you know, or any of that stuff, the logical stuff becomes irrelevant. Oh, he's not a politician. He doesn't know that it's irrelevant because he has a movement and movements always win. Think about the politicians that's coming up this year. What are their slogans? Do you even know? You'll never know what any what what does any politician stand for? No one knows because no one cares about the logical stuff. No one cares about 
Oh, da, da, da. you see, here's the science, man. Human beings evolved in tribes. And so human beings will always want to exist in tribes because it is genetic. It's, bi it's, biolog it's, it's biology. If you're a caveman and you're the alpha caveman, um, you get everything. You get resources, you get reproduction, you get everything. Um, and you set the standard for what is the in-group, what is cool and what is not. Um, if you're in that in-group, if you're cool with the gang of the alpha caveman, then you win, you succeed. You get part of his resources, part of his access to you know his distribution channel, all that stuff. If you're in an out-group, like you're not in a cool crowd, you get outcasted from the from the you know the tribe, and you're out in the wilderness on your own. And when you're out in the wilderness on your own, you die um, because you have no tribe, you have no one to defend yourself, you don't have community, you know. Um, and so, due to that process, humans have a very strong aversion to being in the outgroup, to being outcast, to being on their own. You know, because it is associated in our primitive minds with death. And so when you create a culture, you create an in-group that people want to join, then suddenly you have, you know, a delicate balance of, okay, we're with this because we associate with this movement because we associate it with, in our minds, with the truth and the ultimate survival. And every human being, they, what they want in life is they want to increase in status, which increase in status means you're in the right in group which is associated with survival and so they'll always err on the side of your in group because it, it's an emotional experience despite what all their logic is telling them their emotional is telling them if i'm with this group these are the cool kids these are the right people these are the people they're going to win eventually and they're going to take me to the chip they're going to take me to the championship they'll feel that their status is increased by being in the group with you and that and that you know that's how you create true fans you have to create an opportunity for people that you know the status increase, the value they get from status increase from being around you is more important than the money that they spend on you. Okay? They have a greater value in status increase than, than they do for the money that are, they're exchanging. You know, the money is less valuable than the, than, than the status that they're getting. It's essentially what I'm saying. And you see a lot of people doing this uh, in rap. You know, a lot of rap artists build cultures around their ideas. And it solidifies their, you know, their their stay in the game, the rap game, permanently, you know, uh, for the long run. You know, uh, a lot of rappers think being a good rapper matters. You know, they think they think they think being having a good album matters, but artists who are on and or, or mainstream know better than that. And so when they go to drop an album, what do they do? They go to the distribution channels, you know, the big boy, you know, uh, sway in the morning, and they talk. And they try to reach the mainstream crowd. They try to reach the mainstream audience and induct them into their culture by talking about their life and their stories. They erect themselves as the attractive character. And they tell them about tell they tell people about their ideas and what they stand for. They hardly ever talk about the music on their albums. They might call their culture something like Logic calls them Bobby Soxers or Odd Future Wolfgang. You know, you're part of the you know you're part of Odd Future. You're part of this. You know what I'm saying? They have their own mantras: kill people, burn. F school. I don't know if I can curse on Apple, so I'm, I'm, I'm erring on the side of caution. But think about all the future. You know, you might not think they have the most talent in terms of music, you know, uh, which they're very talented musicians. I mean, back then, you know, you might think that's more of a teenager's taste because they were young. Um, I love Air Squat Street music. Let me just say that first and foremost. Uh, been a big fan of Tyler all my life, too. Um, 
and uh, the internet is phenomenal too. You know, they, Frank Ocean, particularly my favorite artist of all time. Uh, I, Blonde was an incredible masterpiece of an album. Definitely top one album of this decade alongside Spimper Butterfly and Acid Rap and things like that. But the point of the matter is that, you know, in terms of literal content and quality, I think if you look back at the Art of Future movement when we were much younger, um, there were better artists around. You know, there were much better artists around. But those artists didn't have the, in terms of content, but those artists didn't have the prevalence of them and they didn't dominate the era like them because they didn't have the culture that they had. They didn't have the mass movement that they had. Okay? And so... Yeah, it, it, that makes all the difference. And if you look at one of the components of a mass movement, oh, I just stumbled upon it in the book here. It's something called one of the rules of the the attractive character is that they have a prolific. They they're they're on something called the prolific index, and uh, the prolific index is um, like a little chart here in the book, and it's like a gradient. On either side of the gradient is crazy. You know, it's the crazy zone, and uh, that's where your ideas will not be attractive to anybody and in the middle of the 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 thing is uh the neutral zone the mainstream so the mainstream ideas are smack in the middle and the crazy zone is on either side so in the middle it's like moderate those are mainstreams then on either side it's radical but then on either you know in between mainstream and crazy is is um prolific is the prolific zone is what he calls it and a prolific zone is the idea, you know, ideas that are in between crazy and in between mainstream that aren't too crazy where people can still get onto it, but aren't too mainstream to where, you know, it's the same thing as mainstream. And uh, these ideas called polarity and polarity is an important feature of, you know, an attractive character. You know, if you look at the election in uh, 2016, it was 100 million people voted Donald Trump, 100 million people voted Hillary. If you look at my little movement, it was a mass of people loving it and a mass of people absolutely hating it. You'll get both sides of the coin. And uh, that's just one component of attractive character. But I'm not going to c- c- uh, continue beating a dead horse too much. Um, that's all I really have to say, had to say for today. I want to say, though, if you really look at it, even on a micro level, because businesses are the conduits for our mass movements and our ideas being put out into the world. Um, all businesses and teams, whatever you want to call them, they all are mass movements. The CEO of the business, you know, he's the attractive character. Um, and the people in the business, whether it be the employees or the people who buy from the business, they have somewhere that they want to go. Their business is a vehicle for them to go somewhere. Okay, whether it's to a higher position in life by upgrading or rising to the ranks of their business or is it or if it's by, you know, getting a lot of status from being a part of that business's culture and being a purchaser of that business like, a, you know, like a like a stamp of honor. Like if you buy from ClickFunnels, if you're a ClickFunnels buyer, you're a funnel hacker and you feel like you're cool because you're like one of the marketing guys, you know, you associate yourself with Russell Brunson. Um and then the business can either be a new opportunity for the buyers or the people within or not. You know, like let's say you've been working at an office all your life. It's a new opportunity if you can work from home in this business. Uh, or if this business is like uh, just something that you haven't done before. Like, you know, let's say you've been using websites all your life and now you switch to ClickFunnels. It's a new opportunity. And so businesses themselves are, you know, little mini mass movements. But 
they only become mass movements depending on how you facilitate them. Um, you can take everything to the next level. You have the core business and the idea, you know, you have you have yourself as an attractive carrier and these people rallying behind you to push your ideas and your vision out into the world, which is the goal of the designer to impact the world. But you have to add another layer onto your business, which people call, they call it brand, I guess. You know, you have to add company culture. You have to add brand to it. You have to add story to it in order to hypercharge the entire thing and really put some flame to your movement. I hope I'm explaining that. I'm pretty exhausted now. So I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but I do want to say this, man. If you have a business, you know, one of the ways I prefer for people to, obviously, to add a culture, to add a tribe around that business, around your centralized idea of that business and make that idea more prominent and therefore impact more people also is to create something called a sales memoir. Uh, It's a book, but it's not a book. (laughs) It's the next evolution of a book. Okay. And uh, because these sales memoirs, they get your ideas and they format them in a way that sells the audience in your business and around your business who buy from your business on the ideas, the central ideas of your business and creates them into true fans. Same way if you read Dotcom Secrets, Expert Secrets, or Traffic Secrets by Russell Brunson, you become a funnel hacker. These books induct you into the culture that is Russell Brunson's business, ClickFunnels. It's not just a software service anymore. People are diehard fans of this. I would never use another service. I wouldn't. ClickFunnels costs, you know, it costs a little bit, but I would never use another service. No matter how broke I've become, I've always used ClickFunnels. Even when I didn't have the money, I found a way to buy it again. You know? And it's because of these books. It's because of these stories that he's telling. Because of these content. You know? What is the central idea of your business? Now, how can you structure a content piece like a sales memoir in order to indoctrinate people? into being part of the culture and tribe of your business and in, in indoctrinating them you do make impact on their lives take these cold this cold traffic that's coming in your business and turn them into something else you know that's the whole idea behind it um you know and so if you're interested in getting a sales memoir written you know you know I'm a uh, I write sales memoirs through our you know company media launch but uh we're not exactly launching anything right now and so if you want, you know, to be part of the waiting list, you know, it's in chronological order, first come, first serve. So you want to get on that list pretty early. If you want to be on the list of people who are going to get their sales memoir written when we do launch, if you want to be part of the first wave, I recommend you go sign up right now uh, to our email list. It's at, uh, or waiting list rather, it's at www.memoirlaunch.com forward slash launch list. One word, launch list. Well, two words, but they're put together no spaces, no nothing. And, uh, it's going to be a little quiz to see if you're a good fit for us here at memoir launch. Um, cause not everybody is. And then you'll be able to enter your email address and get on a waiting list and save your seat, reserve your spot. So you can be part of the first wave of people who get their sales memoirs written sales memoirs. I think are key. They're very, very key in getting people on board because what we do over at memoir launch is we do something called a six month launch campaign. Now we got an expensive service, albeit, but we do like a six months launch campaign. And so what we do is we get people who have no idea, even people who already buy and follow your business, you know, but really don't know what your central ideas are. We get them excited. You talk on your Instagram, your social media. Oh, we got a book coming. We got a book coming on the way. You know, this is a six month launch process. Get them all excited. Get them all on the waiting email list. Get them all on the waiting email list. And then you structure your idea. What is your central idea? And you put it in this sales memoir. 
you know, your story and your idea. You take those three components, your attractive character, your future-based cause, and your new opportunity, and you structure them in a great story format um, to where they bond with you and your business, and they become part of your tribe and part of your culture, uh, and you induct them in a profitable way that sells them on more of what you're already selling. Like, you read the Expert Secrets book, and it indoctrinates you, and it makes you want to buy ClickFunnels. Um, that's the power. It's, that's a profitable way to build your tribe and build your community and build your culture and impact people. Uh, and what I was saying about earlier about impact was when you indoctrinate people, you do impact them because when Russell Brunson puts out these books and he indoctrinates people into his culture, then he's indoctrinating them into a culture that's beneficial for them. Because a lot of people that's come into ClickFunnels have changed their lives and completely. I think about 450 people up until this point have become millionaires through the teachings and the culture of ClickFunnels. Uh, of being a funnel hacker. And so I think a lot of people need to do the same, especially in these times of trial, you know, where viruses and pandemics are breaking out. If you want to bulletproof your business, if you want to protect your business to the point where people are going to strive and fight for you because they are a part of you and they identify with you, you got to create that shell of protection. You got to create a culture and a tribe around your business. And like I said, it's in a profitable way by building yourself a sales memoir. So if you're interested in that, get on our launch list, www.memoirlaunch.com slash launch list and uh, reserve your seat to be part of the first wave to get your sales memoir written. Um, it's a beautiful experience. It's a beautiful experience all the way around. You know, like I said, uh, we write six month launch campaigns for people. And so out the gate, you got to, you know, when you've really launched the book, you got a hungry group of people ready to buy this book. And we built the funnel for you. And um, when we built the funnel for you, not only is it like they get the book, but then it funnels into your business. Okay, so we're just about building profitable campaigns that actually impact people all around the world. www.memoirlaunch.com slash launch lists to reserve your, you know, your spot in line. But uh, other than that, man, I don't really have much else to say. I appreciate everybody for listening. I appreciate everybody for sticking along with me and my long with stories. Uh, was that impactful? Did you like that? Um, if so, you know, rate this podcast, uh, subscribe to this podcast, follow this podcast, download this podcast, follow me, reach out, message me on social media, talk to me about it. I'm going to hear your thoughts on this episode. Maybe if you're an entrepreneur, come on, let's interview you about this podcast. Um, anything, you know, uh, that's really all I have to say. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, you can find me, uh, once again, if you want your sales memoir written. Reserve your spot in line at www.memoirlaunch.com forward slash launch list. And uh, that's really all I have to say. Peace out. Thank you, designers. And this is the Grand Design Podcast. This is Dallas, and I'm rolling out. Thanks. As usual, thought I was finished, but not quite. Uh, here's just another way to think about it. Think about religion. Think about the Bible and Christianity. It's like, okay, the attractive character. Okay, it's Jesus. And he's like, um, we got the future-based cause. We want to get everybody that's good to heaven. And uh, it's polarity because if you're doing bad, you, you probably don't like religion. Um, and then, uh, which I'm not religious, by the way. But uh, And then it's the new opportunity. Oh, you've been having X and Y, Z trouble with this other religion you're using? Switch to our religion and uh, those problems will be solved. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, even religion itself is a mass movement. And uh, that's why it functions. It follows all the components. Um, and if you want to have, you know reap the rewards of the full rewards of your business build a tribe build a mass movement and change the world that's all i have to say man peace out thanks